0: We're going to open to Romans chapter 7 this morning, Romans 7. I mentioned last week that we're going to take about a three-week uh, break from the book of Matthew, <clears throat> and the topic is sanctification in Romans 6 through 8. Maybe you're familiar with uh, the term identity crisis. (laughs) Maybe you've actually experienced an identity crisis of some sort at some point in your life. Um, Our oldest, our daughter, is uh, a thousand miles away from home, just left for college a few weeks ago. And um, it's been an adjustment for us, of course, but it's been a big adjustment for her. She's in a new place, new surroundings, new people, and For the first time, kind of an adult, sort of, out on her own. And as such, you know, she's kind of trying to find herself, to find her place, to find her way, really to figure out, you know, who am I? Who really am I as a person? And I don't know if you've ever been, um, maybe you've visited where you grew up after you were older. And when you went back home you realized that, you know, you'd kind of almost become a different person than you were when you were a kid. Or at least you think about yourself in a way that's different from what the, you know, your family and your friends who knew you when you were little, the way they think about you. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, when you go back home, it's like, I don't quite know how I fit in anymore. You're Sort of in this um, identity crisis, you feel awkward, you feel like a kid again, not quite yourself. Maybe it happens when somebody gets married. And they become, you know, they were part of one family. And now they also become part of another family. And maybe you remember, I don't know, the first Thanksgiving dinner when you were married. And you're at your in-laws. And you're all there and the cousins and the nephews and the aunts and the uncles. And and here you are just brought into this family. You have a new identity and and you know you don't quite know how you fit in what's your place and and you kind of have to sort of find that right i think it's true as well in the christian life there's a kind of a tension in the christian life a kind of identity crisis you know we we used to be characterized by our old sinful natural self and now we are a new person in union with Jesus Christ and that union with Christ is it's a legal union those are that's the initial effects of that union with Christ kind of like when a woman gets married she takes on her husband's name she becomes legally his wife she is legally now united to his family they are we call them her in laws right um, she and her husband share property together, and in that sense, Christ, when we are united with him legally before God, Christ takes on our sin and we are given credit for his righteousness. We become a part of christ's family by virtue of this union with him in the legal sense christ takes away the penalty of sin that used to hang over us. But there's another sense <clears throat> that characterizes this union that we have with Christ, and that is an eschatological sense, which just means the end. And you have this in a marriage, too. A married couple comes together, and they're legally bound together, but then they they live together. They live the rest of their lives out together. They grow old together. And in that sense, Christ works in us to transform, uh, He will one day transform our earthly bodies into resurrection bodies. By His grace, forever and ever and ever, we will live with Him. And so in the end, this union with Christ removes us not only from out from under the penalty of sin, but from un, removes us completely from the presence of sin at all. But it also has an effect right now, in the middle. And that is an experiential effect. And, and, and every marriage has this too, right? You're not only legally bound and you're not only going to live out your days together, but you have to get up every day and learn how to live as a husband to this person, as a wife to this person. They're going to have to learn how to change and live with one another little by little every day, one day at a time. And in that sense, Christ transforms us, and union with Christ transforms us, doesn't it, little by little into a place where we share his holiness more and more. In that sense, Christ overcomes the power of sin in our lives right now. And it's that middle effect, that ongoing, present, progressive effect that we typically call sanctification, and that's my theme the last Uh, these three weeks. Uh, Sanctification in in the sense of Romans chapter 7 is kind of an identity crisis of sorts, where the person who is saved asks himself, who am I? Right? There is this residual connection that he still has with the old life, the old self, and its old desires, and yet he finds that he has new desires that comes with new life and his connection with Jesus Christ. So he he's experiencing this identity crisis. And you see that tension in the text in front of us, beginning in verse number 14. Take a look at your Bible. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. uh, Excuse me, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You see the tension in this passage, don't you? Maybe you've felt this tension in your own life. I know every Christian has. You see the question almost presenting itself to us in the text. Who am I? Who am I? This is the challenging question of Christian sanctification. And in fact, it's actually a thorny, exegetical question, uh, by which I mean interpreters are looking at this text, and they're trying to figure out, who is this person who's talking? And they're coming to disagreement about who it is. Some people, um, in looking at this person who is referring to himself as I... 28 times in our English Bible here in these few verses. Eight times in Greek, it's emphatic. I, this person, is he an unregenerate person? Is this Paul writing about himself looking back on his unregenerate state? Or is this I, a person who's living out his Christian experience? And by the way, let me just say, this is not merely you know, a theological uh, point of hair-splitting, as if only people in ivory towers are concerned about that. this affects what this passage means for all of us in terms of how we think about our sanctification. So let's take a moment and just try to think through it together, and I hope it will help you then to be able to make application of this passage wholeheartedly. Um, There are people who say... But this is Paul referring back to or thinking back to his life as an unregenerate person. And there are two passages or two phrases in this passage that really seem to point that direction. One is in verse 14. You could probably figure out which one it is. He says, I am sold under sin there's another one in verse 23, similar. There he says, I am captive to the law of sin. So these two phrases sound like the language of slavery, right? But yet we know that back in the previous chapter, back in chapter 6, verse 17, he said, You once were slaves of sin, but now, having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. So here, he says, I am sold under sin. And so people say, he must be then looking back on his pre-conversion experience. There are other interpreters who come to this passage and say, well, no, actually, this is Paul writing about his Experience as a Christian. And there's a couple things that point that direction. First of all, there's a shift between verses 13 and 14. From verse 7 to 13, when he talks about how he first came under conviction by the law of God to know that he was a sinner, he's writing all in the past tense, past tense verbs. But when he comes to 14, all the way to the end of the chapter, where he's talking about this in, inward tension, Right? He writes all in the present tense, as if it's something that he's still continuing to experience as he writes this. Another point is that, and I'm going to enlarge on this a little bit more as we come to it, but he describes himself here in terms that seem, I would say, at least a stretch to apply to an unsaved person. For example, verse 21. Notice what he says about himself here. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I delight in the law of God, which to me brings to mind passages like the first psalm, that the blessed man delights himself in the law of the Lord, which surely sounds like a a regenerate person. One thing is for sure, I I do believe, that the I in this passage, Paul writing about himself here in this sense, He's not, the the person in view in Romans chapter 7 is not an ordinary unbeliever. And here's why I know, because an ordinary unbeliever just going about his life apart from God does not cry out from his heart, oh, wretched man that I am. I mean, you've talked to enough unbelievers who are just going on in their life happily apart from God. What do they think about themselves? They say, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I, I don't do too badly. I'm pretty good. And honestly, that's that is the way Paul described his pre-Christian experience. Right? In in Romans chapter, or Philippians, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 6, he says, as to the law, touching the law, I was blameless. You know, there, there was, you know, I was a pretty good person. In fact, I was a very good person. At the very least, I think what's going on in Romans chapter 7, at the very least is a sinner who's been awakened. That is, the law of God has come to show him that he's a sinner. He's under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He's being drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. But if that's true, then what about the language about being sold under sin and being captive to the law? When Christians are said to be set free from sin, how did those figure together? And I think the key is this, that Paul is not talking, when he says, I'm sold under sin and I'm captive to the law of sin, he is not talking about the entirety of his existence. He's not. In fact, he's taking great pains to kind of parse out this tension, this internal identity crisis that he's having, and really to identify himself in a different way. Notice very carefully verse 14, once again, where he says, sold under sin. Notice very carefully what he says before that. He says, I am, this is the end of verse 14. He says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, biblically, when, when, when we read about the flesh, or when Paul uses the flesh especially, he's talking about just a natural born human being in distinction from the new birth that comes through the Spirit. He, when he talks about the flesh, he's talking about living life right now in this mortal body. This body that's going to decay and die. This body that's still under the domination of sin and death as distinct from what he calls in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a spiritual body. Not that our resurrection bodies are going to be immaterial, we're going to be spirits floating around, but rather that those bodies will be brought to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, here he's saying, the eye, notice verse 14, the eye that is sold under sin is, in fact, the fleshy eye. It's myself looked at from that perspective. But if I'm a Christian now, then Ephesians chapter 2 says this I'm not, I'm not, uh, it, it says I am already raised together with Jesus Christ, right? I'm dead with Christ and raised together with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. Even though I'm still living right now here in this world, I'm still in the flesh. And yet he can say, Romans chapter 8, verse 9, you are not in the flesh. So, in other words, a Christian is living in two realities at the same time. Until his bodily resurrection, he's still in the flesh, so to speak. The old nature is still there. But in Christ, he's already raised, and he can say, you are not in the flesh, you have a new spiritual nature. And so here, in verse 14, when Paul says... I am sold under sin. He is speaking only of one aspect of that present reality. And I think you see this more clearly perhaps in verse 18. Jump just a few verses ahead to verse 18. Follow me for a moment, and this will be helpful to us in the application. Verse 18, though, he's making a distinction here. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. Right? There's nothing good in me. I'm sold under sin and that but then he clarifies he says nothing good dwells in me that is i mean in my flesh myself viewed only as a natural born person there's nothing good in me he says the fleshy aspect of my experience is sold under sin and that but that he says is not the whole me that is not the whole i and we'll see that in a, minute, a little bit more now The reason I think that Romans 7 is so difficult to interpret and why people are disagreed, is this a Christian, is this a non-Christian? The reason for that is a real existential tension. I mean, in practice, the Christian life sometimes seems like a contradiction because we really do say, I want to do this, but I find myself doing this. Right? We live for a moment. We act in the moment like an unregenerate person. We are already sanctified, but not yet sanctified in the fullest sense. We're already with Christ, not in the flesh, but here we are still in the flesh, still struggling. We're in between Paul says this back in chapter 6 as well. Remember back there when he said, having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. That's the fact. But then he turns around and he has to give us a command. Now he says, present yourself to God as slaves. Say, well, I thought we were slaves. You are, but be a slave. (laughs) Be what you already are. You're in between this where God has already redeemed you, but you're not fully experiencing all of your redemption yet. Right now, you need to live, intentionally live out your faith in your subjective experience. The truth is, a Christian is not a slave to sin. I'm going to tell you this. If a person gives himself over to sin, he is not a Christian. If a person just continually gives himself to sin. There's no evidence in the Bible that he is a Christian. In fact, he says earlier, if you present yourselves as slaves to anyone, well, you are the slave of that person. You just show what you really are. But at certain moments, that person still acts like a slave to his old nature. His flesh is still plagued by indwelling sin. And I ask you, Be honest, isn't that your experience? Don't you read Romans 7 and feel like, yeah, that's me so often. You know, sin, brothers and sisters, sin is not crushed in a moment. And if you find yourself struggling and wishing that you were more consistent than you are, I think you're in good company. I think that's been the experience of some of the more, most mature believers in all of history, including the Apostle Paul himself. Now, the old self, your natural self, that self sought to live independently from God, right? Just to do what you wanted to do, to be autonomous, autonomous. But the new self, the self that's united to Christ, loves God and genuinely wants to please God. Now, every relationship has certain expectations, certain unwritten rules, right? Before you were married, maybe you lived independently for a while and you got used to doing things a certain way. You left the toilet seat up or always put it down or whatever the case may be or or whatever it was. But when you got married, your spouse said, you know, I never do it that way. I always did it this way. And there are certain sort of expectations that you have that just are a part of that relationship. And you want to please your spouse, and so you you do those things. So when a man comes into a relationship with God, there are certain expectations And those expectations are found in the law. And Paul's going to deal with the law quite a bit here, right? The moral law of God, those timeless moral principles of the universe that are rooted in the very nature of God. It's the way God is, and that's a good thing. But when we are in a relationship with God in Christ, we want to please Him. Just like when you're married, you want to please your spouse. And so you want to meet their expectations, to meet their standards. The problem for Paul, and for us, is that whenever you confront a person with the law of God, guess what happens? Sin rears its ugly head. And that raises two questions. You see them beginning in verse 7. Chapter 7, verse 7. <clears throat> what shall we say then? That the law is sin? Okay, if every time sin, if every time the law comes to bear, I, I, I you know there's a part of me that rebels against that. Is does that mean there's something wrong with the law? He says, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law. I would not have known sin. Uh, let me just stop there for a minute. Is the law sinful, he asks? And the answer is no. You know, many many people think that the God's law is the problem, don't they? People say God's law is too restrictive. I can't. I can't, you know, I can believe a lot of what Jesus said, you know, be nice to your neighbor, but some of the things God said, I just, I can't take it. That's just, that's too restrictive. The law is to blame. A young person goes off to college and he's told, you know, your problem, your problem is just that you grew up in a too strict of a Christian household and you're just suffering from the results of repression that are, you know, that are being manifest in your life. Paul's answer is, is the the law the problem? Paul's answer is absolutely not. Nothing wrong with God's law. The law, in fact, does two things with regard to sin. Notice in verse 7, here's the first one, that the law clarifies sin. The law makes sin clear. Before the law, people still sinned, right? I mean, before the Mosaic law was given, people still sinned. Romans chapter 5 says that's why the penalty for sin for law-breaking, which is death, was dealt upon everybody from Adam to Moses. People still sinned, but when the law comes in, it clarifies. It makes that transgression clear. This is now an act of clear and open rebellion against God. Think about it this way. If a person rebels against and disregards the law of his conscience, the law of nature, then he, someone may say he is wrong. On the other hand, if a person disobeys the laws of the state. He might be called a criminal. But when he violates the law of God, there is nothing to call it but sin and transgression. In this way, the law clarifies sin. But secondly, Paul says, beginning in verse 8, that it provokes indwelling sin within us, actually. The law actually provokes sin. Take a look at what he says here. Verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life Proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. So the law actually comes in to provoke and to reveal the indwelling sin that lies in the heart of every human being. You can think of it this way. The law law is like a stick that someone takes and pokes in a nest of snakes. And all of a sudden, out of that nest come forth this bursting of of anger and violence toward the person. And and someone says, well, what's the problem? The problem, this this stick is my problem. The stick is causing me all kinds of, of problems. No, the problem was already in there, right? The stick just probed it and brought out what was already inside. Um, this is what the law does. It reveals to us that we are sinners. The law makes it clear to everybody that we really have this indwelling, sinful nature. Augustine, the early church leader, um, St. Augustine, He, when he was a young man, he tells about this in his uh, confessions. When he was young, he talks about a time when he and a group of friends went to a neighbor's piece of property and uh, climbed up in his trees and stole a bunch of pears from the neighbor's trees. And they walked, took them all out away and they ate some of the pears. And a lot of them they just ended up throwing to the, to the pigs nearby. And uh, later, Augustine reflects back on that experience and he says, you know, why did we steal the pears? Why did I do that? He said, was I hungry? No, I I had plenty of food to eat. It wasn't that I was hungry. Was it just that they were beautiful? He said, well, we had better pairs at home. It wasn't that they were beautiful. He said, did I just want to please my friends? He said, well, you know, that's part of it, but why should anybody um, approve theft in the first place? He said, really, when I thought about it, I recognized that there was really only one reason that I did it, and that's because it was against the law, because there was a kind of a perverse thrill in doing something that I wasn't supposed to do. He said it this way, I loved nothing in it except the thieving. The law demonstrated that there was a sinful, rebellious heart underneath. All along. James Montgomery Boyce, who was uh, a longtime pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, uh, he told this story one time. He said, one spring, when I was in the sixth grade, our school principal came into the classroom just before we were to be released to go home for lunch. He had heard that some of the students had been playing with firecrackers, and he wanted to say that this was definitely not allowed. Firecrackers were dangerous. They were against Pennsylvania state law. If any of his students even brought a firecracker to school, even if it wasn't set off, he would ex- be expelled immediately. Well, boy says, uh, I didn't own any firecrackers. I had not even been thinking about firecrackers. But you know, once a person starts thinking about them, firecrackers really are an intriguing subject. As I thought about it, I remembered one of my friends who had some. On my way home from school, a friend and I went by this other friend's house and we picked up a firecracker and we returned to school within 45 minutes after the principal's announcement. We went into the cloakroom, invited a friend to come in with us and said, hey, you hold the firecracker by the middle of the fuse, pinch it very tight, we will light it. And when the others think it's going to explode, it won't explode, it'll burn down to your fingers and go out and everything will be all right. He said what we had not counted on was that the fire would burn our friend's fingers. And we lit the fuse and it did. Our friend dropped the firecracker and it exploded in an immense cloud of blue smoke and tiny bits of white paper in the midst of which we emerge from the closet shaken and a bit deaf. He says, You can't imagine how loud a firecracker sounds in an old public school building with high ceilings, marble floors, and plaster walls. Nor can you imagine how quickly a principal can get out of his office, down the hall, and into one of the classrooms. The principal was in our classroom before my friends and I had staggered through the cloakroom's open door. He was as stunned as we were, though for a different reason. I recall him saying over and over after we had been sent home and come back to his office with our parents, I had just made the announcement. I had told them not to bring any firecrackers into school. I just can't believe it. He couldn't believe it then, Boyce writes, but I am sure that our rebellion, as well as the other acts of rebellion by children over the years, eventually turned him into a staunch Bible-believing Calvinist at least as far as the doctrine of the total depravity of children is concerned. And That's what the law does, doesn't it? The law provokes wickedness. It really does. You tell somebody they can't do something or they must do something, and there is within them this little hidden part that just rises up and says, Oh, yeah? And what makes it so terrible is that the very thing that triggers the manifestation of that ugliness is the holy, perfect, pure law of God that just reveals his own character. So that what really comes out of us is nothing less than a rebellion against God himself. That's why Paul says in the end, this shows the exceeding wickedness of sin. That's what the law does. No wonder he says at the end, oh, wretched man that I am. The old self always responds like that to the law. But if you are a new creation, if you are born again into Jesus Christ, then you have a new desire a desire to please the God that you now love. And so verse 16 to 20, in verses 16 to 20, Paul outlines two implications of that internal desire to obey God's law. And with this, we close. On the one hand, he says, if you have a desire in your heart, if you have a desire to please God, to obey the law of God, then he says, if if I find that in myself, then first of all, I acknowledge that by that that the law is actually good. Remember earlier, some people said, hey, the law is the problem. But if he finds that there really is a desire to keep the law, he knows that the law, there's nothing wrong with the law, right? I truly desire to keep the law and please God. But the second implication is this: he says, if I truly desire God to please God, then I must conclude that there's more to me than just the flesh that doesn't obey God's law and rebels against it over and over again. There's something more to me than that. Here's the way he says it. Look at verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do this wrongdoing, but sin that dwells within me. He says, it is this indwelling entity that's not really me. Notice the, how he's sort of making a division here within himself. He says, it's no longer I, it's indwelling sin. He's parsing his own heart, in a sense. And here's how he knows that it's not really him, because of the very next verse. Look at the very next verse. Here's his. Here's his the grounds for saying that. He says, because I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. You know what's in your flesh? Is there any desire to please God in your flesh? He says, no, there's nothing good in my flesh. But yet, in spite of my failures, I find that there is this love, there is this desire to please him, to obey his law. And if there's nothing good in the flesh, then that means that I must be in the spirit. Because these are spiritual desires that I find within myself. We know that there's nothing good in the flesh. The flesh is unredeemable. In fact, in chapter 8, he says, the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Pretty strong words about the depravity of the flesh. In other words, Paul's saying all along, listen, listen. You can no human being can ever just decide to be a better person unless he is born again in Christ. He has to become a new person with new desires. They're still in tension with the old self. But here's the big point I'm trying to make here at the end. That is that a true Christian never identifies with his sin. He says, that's not me. That's this indwelling sin that's still part of the old life, but I'm a new person. I have these desires to please God. That's where I identify. And this is a huge issue for Christians how you identify yourself. Who am I? This identity crisis. Sometimes people say, you know what? This is just me. This is who I am. I'm never going to change. I'm just a sinner. I'm just a liar. I'm just lazy. I'm just angry. I'm just gay. I'm just fearful, I'm just envious, whatever it is. I'm tired of fighting, I'm tired of believing. This is just, this is who I am. I'm going to identify this way. Paul says it again in the end of verse 20, so we don't miss it again. Look at verse 20. It is no longer I who do it, that is what I don't want to do, but sin that dwells within me. Paul is not making an excuse for his sin, But he is saying that I do not identify with my sin. I am Paul in the Spirit, the new Paul, Paul in Christ. And that is who I really identify with. And Paul puts it even more emphatically in the very, very end of the chapter. Look at the very last phrase, verse 25. I myself, he heightens it even more. I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I find that I'm still serving the law of sin. In spite, though, of his lifelong struggle in the flesh, the part of him that serves the law of God, he calls I myself. That's the real me. That's who I identify with. Not with my sin, not with my old self. I identify with Jesus Christ, and I will continue to do that even through this entire struggle that I'm facing. A true Christian never identifies with his sin. He never gives up. He never gives into it. He does never says, this is who I am. Rather, he says, no, I am a man or woman in Christ. I want to know if that's true of you. Are you holding on to Jesus Christ? Are you holding on to your identity in Christ? Are you continuing to struggle against the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit? Or maybe this morning, are you in danger of giving in? Are you in danger of identifying yourself with your old sin? You know, I think there is a sense in which as we mature as Christians, the struggle, in one sense, doesn't get easier, it gets harder. And here's why. Because as a Christian matures, He has a greater knowledge of the Word, a knowledge of God's expectations, that when he's immature, he doesn't even realize he's sinning, right? But as he grows, he realizes more deeply the expectations of God, the holiness of God, and that brings him into a greater realization of his own depravity. As he matures, he grows in a greater love for Christ, which then in turn makes him in greater agony about those things that are against his Lord Jesus. As he matures, he continues to expend a greater effort in struggling against his sin, and, and that brings then a sense of the, the power of sin that he never knew about before. It's kind of like a guy who's, who's lifting a barbell in the gym, right? And, and, and some guy goes over to lift up the barbell, and he reaches down, and he tries to lift it, and he's like, oh, man, that is so hard, and he just walks away. And then somebody else comes, and he reaches down, and it's heavy. But he strains, and he strains, and he strains until he lifts it up, right? Which guy knows more struggle? It's the guy who's actually stronger, right? The guy who, who, who fought against it. Listen to me. Sometimes when, when, when there's an immature Christian, and he's tempted, and he's brought under the, the temptation of his flesh, and, and he just gives in, and And the struggle doesn't go away; it gets deeper, and the Lord brings that sanctification to work in deeper and deeper. It's kind of like peeling back the layers of the onion, right? And the Lord continues to expose new ways that His grace needs to penetrate to the depths of our hearts, and we continue to struggle against our sin, all of our of our lives. You know sometimes we get tempted to despair, and I don't know if that's you. Maybe you're close to that point of just feeling like you're never going to change. You're just almost like, I should just give up. And I just want to say to you one thing, that although the struggle is real and it is difficult, the end is not in doubt. The end is glorious for all of those who are Christ. And I'll leave off with these verses. He says, After he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? His very next words are, Praise to be to the Lord, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of that to say this, brothers and sisters, stay in the fight, keep believing, and remember who you really are in Christ Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that this word would take root in the hearts of those who need it most today. We pray that you would cause the weak hands to be lifted up, that you would strengthen the feeble knees, that you would cause us to make straight paths for our feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed by this word from your mouth today. We pray that no root of bitterness would spring up in the hearts of any one of these and so that they would prove to be an unbeliever bring great defilement. They would sell their birthright for the paltry pleasures of the world. Oh Lord, strengthen us by this word to be faithful in the struggle of grace that you are working out in us. Oh Lord, please do this. Encourage every one of us, this preacher right down to the smallest child here, I pray. In Jesus' name.